0: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Following the last episode I put out, I got an email from Jonathan Wexler. Jonathan is a Fairly common correspondent with me talking to me about what he's going through in Portugal to get his boat down to Portugal. But he also had a suggestion for a show. And here's what he wrote. Just an idea for a show. What is the state of marine insurance? What companies actually make an effort to provide coverage? Regions that no one wants to cover? What will limit your ability to buy, experience, value, location, registration, country, how to improve your ability to buy a boat, how to present yourself. And he suggested maybe a person from Pentaneous Progressive, or other would be a guest. And then he said, I know it's a changing market, and I personally am running into some issues. I applied to a place in the UK, and they had an issue with my boat not being a resident, as did an outfit in South Africa. I can only assume others are sa- having the same issues as well. So I forwarded Jonathan's email to Don Spink and Mark Spink of Blue Water Insurance. I used to be insured by Pantaneous until basically Pantanius threw out every U.S. citizen that they wrote insurance on. So Pantanius does not write insurance for boats owned by U.S. citizens anymore. So I changed insurance policies and I went back to an agent and my agent initially was Don Spink and I went back to him at Blue Water Insurance. So hopefully I can get Don back on to talk about this topic. I think it's a good idea. One that probably needs to be covered about once a year just to get an update on marine insurance and, and what's happening in that particular market. The other email I got from Jonathan was a <laughs> was a tale of woe, and I'm going to read it to you. And he wrote, Quick update, Franz. Having to overcome COVID, Brexit twice, an unprobated sailboat, the U.S. Coast Guard, and finally registration, a two-and-a-half-year process. I decided my scheme to keep My sailboat up in Scandinavia was a failure. I decided to truck my 27-foot boat to Virgo, Spain to be near to my home. The arrangements were made, a date was set, and the truck dispatched. Cost, about 10,000 euros. I flew to Denmark, prepped the boat in two days, and that was when I found my mast to be missing. 11.5 meters of a very obscure furling mast at that. Three days before the truck arrived, the yard staff said they could not find my mast. They knew my boat. They knew my unique mast, but it was not there. At that point, they realized it was not some stupid owner who had misplaced his keys. Two days before the truck arrived, The most two knowledgeable yard employees spent three more hours examining each mast again. Who enters the barricaded area of the yard with a 35-foot trailer and steals an obsolete mast that won't work on their boat? Nobody. If they made a mistake, who doesn't notice? Oops, I got the wrong one. Nobody. Every inch of the entire marina and its multiple yards were searched. Depression and vomiting 24 hours before the truck arrived was in the air. I accepted it was gone. Three and a half hours before the truck arrived, the yard workers drove up and announced, we found your mast. Where is it? On the other side of the bay, about 40 kilometers away, somebody had taken the wrong mast and either had not noticed or was too lazy or cheap to return it and receive their own mast. The marina secretary tracked down who had removed their boat from the previous spring and called them. Do you have your boat there? Yes. Yes. And the mast, yes. Could you please go and see if there's a tag with a name attached? Yes. After checking, who is, they ask. Well, the race was on. Who would arrive first, the truck or the mast? Well, the truck was delayed one hour and 30 minutes before the scheduled transport time. The mast made it. So now my truck is somewhere in Europe, meandering its way towards Spain. Now, barring a meteor strike, revolution, volcano, war, and theft... I may be on my way to sailing from Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan, that sounds like a nightmare. Thanks for sharing that with me. Well, today we have on the podcast Stephen Ladd who wrote the book Five Year Voyage, exploring Latin America coasts and rivers. We're going to I've got the book in front of me. I'm about halfway through it. But basically, we're going to learn about his adventures on this tiny little boat. But before that interview, let me ask that if you like this podcast, that you become a patron, either that, becoming a patron and supporting the podcast, or going to the website medsailor.com and buying one of my audio courses for the ASA examinations. I can't teach you to sail a boat with an audio course, but I can teach you the terminology and what you need to understand to pass the written portion of the ASA exams. I have audio lessons for the ASA 101, the 103, and the 104. I've had good reviews on those audio lessons. So if you're trying to prepare for one of the ASA exams, or if you're just a brand new sailor or is it a wannabe sailor, first start out with the ASA 101. It'll teach you the terminology of sailing, which is so important. All right, let's get on to my interview. With Stephen Ladd, I'm on Skype with Stephen Ladd. This is my first time talking to you, Stephen, but I was contacted by your publicit- your publicist for your book, and she told me a little bit about your book, and I thought, well, it sounds like it'd be somebody interesting to invite to uh, to talk to on the podcast. Now, you just wrote a book called "The Five Year Voyage: Exploring Latin America, Coasts and Rivers." And you did it in a very, very small sailboat. So, and this is this is your second book. You're, you're quite the adventurer, it sounds like. I'm about, I'm, I've got the book in front of me right now, and I'm about halfway through it. Uh, you've just uh, exited out the rivers in Venezuela, and you are actually, on the picture I'm seeing, you are right at the equator on Rio Negro, or Rio Negro. And, um... Let's start at the beginning and uh tell us a little bit about yourself and you and your wife and where you're located and what you do for a living. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I live in Bremerton, Washington. That's where there's a big naval shipyard, not that that has to do with anything. And but I have lived here all my life and I live here with my wife and two sons. Um I just happen to have been adventurous and interested in exploration all my life, and so it's probably best for me to go somewhat chronologically and mention the three-year voyage first. Three years in a 12-foot boat is the book about it, and in addition to being adventurous, I'm a minimalist, and so my boats tend to be small just because I like things that are kind of small and manageable. And um, my three years in a 12-foot boat was in a boat of my own design and construction, light enough to pull it out of the water, like up onto the beach by myself at night, to spend the evening sleeping in my boat, because it does have a cabin, an enclosed cabin, but at only 250 pounds, I can drag it out of the water. And that that voyage took me down to and through South America and back again to U.S. waters, and then I met my wife subsequently. She, it was really her idea, she said, let's go on a trip kind of like what you did. I'll go with you. And we, we got ourselves a boat suitable for two, a little bit bigger to fit two, but otherwise a similar traveling strategy, which is sailing, rowing. And then later in the voyage, we picked up a small outboard motor. And uh, there's there's the basics of it. Let me respond to
0: questions you might have. Yeah. Now, are you a physical therapist? No. Okay. I somewhere use, I saw I, I saw something that said PT for some reason. I thought in your title, but maybe that was wrong. Maybe that was somebody else. No, I'm uh, a I'm a city planner. Ah. Okay. Okay. Maybe it was CP. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. Talk to me about this boat that you. Um, well tell tell us about the first boat you built. You did you build it yourself or did you just design it yourself? How was that boat? That
1: boat, yeah, it it's a, it's a, it's an interesting story that that boat. I I decided to you know, be a boater, right? I wasn't born a boater particularly. I didn't have that much exposure to that in my early years. It's just something I picked up in my early adulthood in my in my 20s and I decided to build a sailboat and sail around the world, typical kind of dream and I decided to design my own boat I decided to just kind of take everything from scratch. I designed a boat that would be 30 feet long but then um, due to some crazy new ideas, I scaled it down to 12 feet long and it's a Hull molded hull, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, a very light wooden structure. The masts are portions of windsurfer masts, so also very light and no standing rigging. You just stick the masts into sockets. And the sails are simple little triangular sails that are boomed with a sprit boom. And there's no jib or anything, it's just two triangular sails. The, the main and the, and the mizzen, which is a yawl, and long oars, so a good roar, but not a sliding seat and um, the the types of equipment are typical of what you would use in a backpacking trip more than anything else. that is like the cooking equipment and so forth. You're able to carry some maybe a week's worth of supplies, but it's meant to um, travel along coastlines. Island to island, and and on rivers, especially if you're going down river. I had no motor for that boat, so it would have been hard to go up a river. So that was the first boat.
0: Did did you have it made for you? You say it was a cold molded hull. Did you do it yourself? No,
1: I made it. Oh, okay. I designed it and made it. I from the very first line, pencil line on paper. I just read everything I could about. Naval architecture, right? I did it a, a very traditional way of checking all the all the, you know, the metrics of prismatic coefficient and so on and so
0: forth. What what kind of wood did you use for the skin? Douglas fir. Oh, okay. And
1: they were eighth inch veneers, only two eighth inch veneers. So the total thickness is quarter inch. Um in a uh, forty five degree by forty five degree pattern, you know? Mm-hmm. Both of them are diagonal, so you'd call it double diagonal.
0: Okay. Yeah, as I've read a lot on different boat building woods and they say that Douglas fir is the one wood that you could build an entire boat from, from the mm-hmm. hull all the way to the mm-hmm. masts. So it's a well, great I'm, boat I'm, building wood,
1: yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm of course fond of our native Douglas fir. There's no more Washingtonian tree than the Douglas fir.
0: Yeah, and it's it's very difficult to get that in Europe. I had to rebuild my my bowsprit uh, on my boat a few years ago, and of course it was built with quarter sawn Douglas fir, and it just had gone through 20 years and needed to be replaced. And I could not find Douglas fir uh, or a or a suitable substitute for Douglas fir over over in and this was in Turkey. We ended up using a heavier tropical wood, which I don't think is holding up as well. But anyway, let us that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about that first trip. How far down, you said you got down to South America and back. Where did you go on that trip?
1: Well, that trip was pre-planned. I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and it ended up, accomplishing itself, that it did happen, and that was that I crossed North America by rivers, then sailed to an appropriate place in South America where I could transport it across the Andes and then go down those rivers and then sail back. So in both cases, there was a portage. Here in, in North America from the Seattle area, which is where I live, I transported inside a a van. It's so small a boat that it could actually fit in my friend's van. We drove to Glacier National Park, Montana and launched just east of there in a stream called the Milk River that's the northernmost tributary of the Missouri river drainage system and it's actually, well it begins in Montana just barely then it goes through Alberta, Canada for 300 miles, comes back into Montana and eventually joins the Missouri River, which joins the Mississippi. So I went down that river system just rowing and sailing. And then from New Orleans, I got a temporary job on a freighter. This is just something that happened. I'd never worked as a seaman before, but I, I worked for my passage to Panama with my boat on deck. And... The, the voyage, per se, began again there. And uh, I went through the Panama Canal, and then south, it's actually more of a east and south, along the Pacific coast of Panama and Colombia. And this is in 1990. Um, it was a very dangerous place to be then, may still be, I'm not sure. It took me six months to go only 600 miles. It was the most difficult and dangerous part of that trip. It's a difficult coastline. Then from the port of Buenaventura, which is the major Colombian port on the Pacific side, I got a series of pickup truck rides that took me across the Andes through the capital city of Bogota and to a river called the Meta, which is in the, it's called the Llanos, meaning the prairie or plains of northern South America. And that Meta River flows into the Orinoco. We're now in Venezuela and comes out at the mouth of the Orinoco, which is close to Trinidad. And that was the completion of the third part. And then the fourth part was the Antilles, you know, all the, all the, all the Antilles Islands leading to Florida. So that was that, was that voyage.
0: Hmm, okay. Do you, do you happen to know Spike Hampson? No, I never heard that name. You never heard of him. Okay. Well, he did something very similar to what you're talking about and he's been I interviewed him on episode number I think 43. Uh you can look him up if you do a search for Spike S P I K E H A M P S O N. And he built a riverboat, a flat-bottomed riverboat, not a sailboat, but a riverboat and launched it in the uh Yellowstone River which again flowed in the Missouri River, down through that, then up the Chicago River, around the Great Lakes, and then down the east coast of the United States, over to the Bahamas. And this is uh, this is not one you can pick up. It was a powerboat. But uh, his goal was to do pretty much the equivalent of what you did in the five-year voyage. So you were successful. He ended up, I think, losing his boat. And I've just gone to his website, and it says it's not secure, so my browser won't let me go there at spikehampson.com but um but he wrote a small book about it as well which is free It used to be free on his website if you could get to it and uh but anyway um so so similar similar adventures he's a, profesh- a professor a adjunct professor at the University of Utah and that's where I met him through was was mm-hmm. that but he was doing a very similar Kindred spirits. It sounds like similar. Sp- yeah,
1: he's uh, he's got the same addiction.
0: Yeah, and he built his he built his boat himself just like you did, but it was a different design boat, and uh, so he had a very small motor on it. I think uh, probably a ten or fifteen horsepower motor, where you had a two horsepower motor on on this boat. So let's talk about this book, and first of all, give us the overall. Voyage, and then we 're going to start going section by section, and we, we'll go as far as we can get in about an hour and If I need to get you back again, then we'll try to schedule another interview if that 's okay with you
1: yeah, sure, well, so after that first voyage, um, a good eighteen years, twenty years go by and and I met who became my wife, it was more I, her idea to go on an adventure similar to what I had done before I met her and um, she was a very enthusiastic and uh, willing participant from day one till the final day and but in this case it was not feasible to have a boat that we could drag up on the beach in order to have a similar level of accommodation we needed a little bit bigger boat that was going to be a little too heavy for that so but other than that it was a very similar boat 21 feet long instead of 12. About the same draft, still only about six or seven inches of draft in the boat, so it's a flat-bottomed boat. And it has an an enclosed cabin so as to make it better rescuable in case of capsize, and of course to keep out mosquitoes and rain. And um, it also was a sailboat and also two-masted, and also freestanding rigging. This is the Sea Pearl 21 is what we got. It's a boat built until recently. They don't build them anymore, but built in Florida. And it's a freestanding rig that has a very ingenious reefing system. You just, you just rotate the masts in their sockets, and as you rotate the mats, just with your hands... The sail gets one wrap, then two wraps, and three wraps, and those are all reefs. So it's reefing in a vertical rolling system. And uh, for the first two of five years, we had no motor, but then we did get the Honda two-horse outboard motor. And uh, the the voyage in that case was not pre-planned. It evolved. We began only wanting to Explore the Western Caribbean, but then we got that two-horsepower Honda in order to go easterly along the Caribbean coasts of Colombia and Venezuela during the winter time. You know when the when the trade winds are strong, and found it to be so handy and so economical in its in its fuel usage that we decided to continue into the continent of South America and we went up the Orinoco River and which I had been on on the previous voyage but we continued all the way up to something that I knew existed but until I saw it with my own eyes it was almost hard to believe and that's that the the, the Orinoco River in, in coming from its source mountains and this is high in the Amazonia region of southern Venezuela, part of it splits off and becomes a headwaters of the Rio Negro, which is a tributary of the of the Amazon. So we were able to to navigate continuously, we just turned right and now we're going downstream on this other you would call it a tribute distributary as opposed to a tributary river. And that is now the most remote part of South America. Uh, there are days at a time when you travel for a whole day and a whole other day, you never see another human being, you never see a house you never see a boat, it is just pure jungle and we are creating our own maps, I'm not saying that we're the first people ever there by by any means, nor that it's not mapped but it's not mapped in the navigational sense, there's nobody that has maps that tell you that are for navigating purposes, they're just like Geographic maps that you might find, and we, we we created our own maps by going on to the internet and of course we have no we have no um, communications or internet access during the course of the voyage only when we come to a city or a town and in that locale we have we find a cyber cafe a place where there's where you can go onto the internet and then we go onto Google Earth and we zoom and pan and click and create artwork on top of that that artwork which is just vector lines which we're able to save in the form of in effect our own map that we have created and that shows on our gps now we have only a handheld gps that's our navigation system everything's very simple we have no electronics that are uh, in the conventional sense of like connected to your battery we just have a a handheld gps we had a we had a laptop computer we had headlamps our lighting system our navigational lights are battery operated everything is as, as much as possible is battery operated and um the uh, the chart that we've created which is vector lines shows on our little screen on our gps and that tells us most frequently, uh, which way to go around a sandbar or around an island, and how to find the next town so we can get provisions. And um, so that was the first of several, I, I'll call them humps. So you, have, you go up a river, and then you find a way to uh, get across the top of the hump. And in most cases, it requires a portage. Then you go down the river on the other side to an ocean, basically. And um, let me stop there and see if you care to direct my explanations any further.
0: No, you're doing great, and I'm sort of looking on this map in the book on page one of the book, and uh, trying to visualize this as you do that. Also, I'm I'm on Google Earth, and I'm I'm looking. So basically, I'm trying to, and and anybody can do this, I guess. You're you're creating KMZ files in in Google Earth, and then converting them to. Uh, paths that will upload to a Garmin is that right? Is that basically exactly. what you were doing? Yeah.
1: yeah, there is a file conversion along the way, and um, but and my my wife is is technically enough to have figured this out, and um, for each as you you're looking at the book, you see the um, and there's quite a few maps that mm-hmm. we created ourselves. These are in a way they're kind of children of the maps we actually created because the. The GPS routes that you see there are our actual well the the arrows mm-hmm. that show our route are our actual GPS routes, and um, the maps that created there were created in a similar fashion to to how we made our
0: maps. Okay, so you went up, you basically went overland a little ways and dropped into the Orinoco River, and then went up the river, and I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that. Either discovered or made the claim that the Orinoco River and the Amazon River would join. Did you, did you actually join the Amazon River then? Yeah, when we went up the
1: Orinoco and then took off onto that distributary, which is called the it is a it flows into the Negro, which flows into the Amazon. So at that point, we were in the Amazon basis. It, Basin as soon as we went downstream on that distributary.
0: Okay, and then you came back up on the Rio I can't quite read this, but uh, But another river you went back up and around Brazil uh, Yeah, yeah, we went we went
1: on our southerly trajectory kind of right through the middle of the continent The which is odd because the Amazon flows from west to east, but we went from north to south cutting across the green of, of the flow of the river there, and but then in the more southerly portion of South America, we were in different systems of rivers, there's the Paraguay, the Paraná, those rivers took us to Argentina in its capital, Buenos Aires. And we went to Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, and then to come back was a different set of rivers and it was another hump. We went up the Uruguay, the Paraná. Paranaiba and some smaller rivers. That took us to the headwaters beyond which one can only get a ride, you know, a transport. Mm -hmm. And we got a total of 13 portages or transports in South America from as short as one mile to as long as 300 miles. And we just arranged those on the spot talking to people who have trucks and pickup trucks. It's either on a flatbed or, in one case, just actually sticking up over the cab of a pickup truck or a little bit more frequently on some kind of a trailer. And um, so we got to the other side of that hump, and it was a a major but very not well-known river called the Araguaia that took us north again into the Amazon Basin again.
0: All right. Quite an adventure. Five years. Now, as I've been reading this, one of the things that you uh, you dealt with which uh <laughs> which i think is probably one of the hardest things to do on a on a project like this is the bureaucracy clearing in and clearing out and clearing in and clearing out and uh, corrupt officials and and uh, and that sort of thing and like i said I'm, I'm basically to the equator so i haven't come all the way back around on your book but uh do you want to do you want to comment on that at all well you've
1: you've read through the part uh on Venezuela so you know the hardest part there wasn't <laughs> okay. anything that matched that again all right but um it it's worth my pointing out i suppose that with with my first voyage and the, and then this voyage i i and then our policy was always to do all the steps to just be infinitely patient and get all permits that are applicable. And we did that um, until eventually that sort of wore off and we became more nonchalant, more cavalier and we started ignoring more things. And towards the end of the of the five-year voyage, uh, the last five months I was by myself because when when my wife and I, reached, uh, and and at that point we had our baby, we reached the mouth of the Amazon ready to go home again, but that means out into the ocean, and with a baby it was unsuitable, so that was by myself. Well, that last five months I got almost no clearances. I I just didn't have time. I didn't want to bother. And so um, anyway, I don't, I'm not saying that as a recommendation, but at that point I was just kind of worn out with it.
0: And you didn't have any problems doing that? No. Okay. <laughs> Some sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Uh, I think so.
1: Yeah. If you if you don't get clearance into a country and you step on shore there, you are illegal, and you better not have any brush with the law or anything. You know, you better not better better better, better keep your nose clean if you're someplace illegally.
0: Okay. All right. So let's talk about uh, your your first leg of the trip, and basically where you left Florida, and you went down through I guess through through Marathon and out to the Keys, and then your hop over to the Bahamas. Now that archi- that that island you went to, I never knew even existed until reading your book. So talk to me how you actually were able to visit Cuba, even though. Y- Americans are not allowed to visit Cuba. Mm-hmm. Well, I had visited it in the 1990
1: to 1993 mm-hmm. voyage as well, so I knew that I could go there, and we um, both my experiences with Cuba were sort of satisfactory with certain flaws. I mean, as a communist country, they don't they don't really. Um, facilitate or accommodate cruising very well but in a minimal way they do and um, so we we just went our way through there actually in and this would be the year 2009 or 10 2010 in 2010 it was worse than in and then in 1993 in 1993 I had um, I had I would say a fair degree of navigational freedom but in 2010 we had quite a bit less we could only officially or legally stop where there was a marina and there weren't very many marinas but uh, that was no major deal we got ourselves through Cuba and uh, made the crossing across the Yucatan passage to basically it's Isla Mujeres you know Cancun and um, so that was that's another major, you know, for a boat this size, the 21 foot boat that is quite light. It weighs about fully loaded. It's about a thousand or 1,200 pounds. Um, that's a light boat, you know, flat bottom to make that crossing. So it's the passages that are the, are sort of difficult, uh, but mostly we're 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 going along coastlines.
0: Okay, and I'm looking. You made one big, and I just measured this out on on Google Earth about a. 72 mile, nautical mile passage from Marathon out to Sal Cay or Cay yes. Sal.
1: Yeah, that island I stopped at on both of my voyages and it's part of the Bahamas, but it's actually a different bank. If you look at the Bahamas, the the, ba- the Bahamas bank as a bank, that's where most of the Bahamas are, but this is a different bank. within in the country of the Bahamas, but it's called the um, I guess it's called the Cal S- Sal K Bank.
0: Or K Sal is what it looks says on Google Earth, S-S-S-S. but that, yeah. that could be backwards for all I know.
1: Sal, as in salt, uh-huh. and it's 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 a it's it's similar, but it's just a separate bank. And for some reason, not visit. Well, it only has that one island, and um, except for some rocks, and that island is not a. Well, it's. I'm not sure what it's – It's. It's the only people there are some um, Bahamas uh, naval personnel. I'm not sure if it's a military island per se, but they, they, they had a history of the island being conquered by Cuba and occupied by Cuba. And so they have to keep sailors there so that the Cubans don't come and occupy it again.
0: I'm looking around uh zooming in and I don't see any indication of humans on that island, but they might be hidden there somewhere for all I, yep. for all I can see here. But uh yeah. So but the reason you went there was that was you when you entered Cuba, you were not entering from the United States at that point in time, but instead from the Bahamas. Was was that part of the reason going there?
1: Yeah, it was. There's um I don't know if it still exists. I presume it still does, that you're, you're not allowed to sail from the United States to Cuba, but there's nothing saying you can't sail from the Bahamas to Cuba.
0: Okay, okay. But you didn't actually clear into the Bahamas. You just stopped there for a night. But that's a long, that's a long passage in your boat. Now, what was the overall length of your boat was what again? 21 feet. Okay, 21 feet. And you rowed that a lot. Where was the rowing station, in the back in the cockpit or up front?
1: In the cockpit, yeah. The, the Sea Pearl has a, a fairly, well, it's just kind of a, not, I was going to say roomy, it's not really a roomy cockpit. It, it's got a cockpit with you know, the footwell and, and seats. And um, we got ourselves a rowing station, a, ro- a sliding seat rowing station that's, a, that's intended to be a, a drop-in for, generally speaking, it's for canoes. And we made it, made it so that it could be set in place in the cockpit now if the if the rowing station is there in place and somebody's rowing nobody else can sit in the cockpit it takes up the whole cockpit but what we tended to do then is the person who's not rowing and that would usually be my wife well, although she sometimes rowed too the person not rowing sits in the companionway hatch facing forward look you know their feet down in the cabin and their head looking over the cabin top i mean it's not a very call cabin top and so they're they're reconnoitering they're conning and the the person conning will give instructions turn left turn right and that sort of thing and um, the roar rose accordingly
0: okay so on that 70 some mile passage from marathon was that two nights on board then how fa- i guess the question is how fast will the boat go in optimal conditions
1: we left one evening and arrived at k Sal um, not quite not quite twenty four hours later i guess okay so, and uh, we then we it was just it it broke broke up a really long passage into two passages and um the sea Pearl is just a moderate sailor in terms of its overall sailing ability it's um it's not slow but it's it's not, but it is kind of slow to windward it's not a It's not a very good boat to windward i I suppose that's a uh an unavoidable um disadvantage of having a um a boat with freestanding standing mass you know you have no finely tuned uh head
0: stays and jibs and so forth yeah, my boat sails terrible to windward most cruising boats don't sail very well to windward. When I look at my tracks, when I'm sailing my boat and tacking back and forth and in ideal conditions, it's not very good. (laughs) It's depressing. Mm -hmm. So if I have to go into the wind, I usually just decide to start my engine and motor into Mm -hmm. the wind. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. Uh, So from there, you went down to Cuba, and that's about another 28, 30 miles to the mainland of Cuba, and then worked your way along the coast of Cuba. Right. now, did, now you probably came to the closest spot that you could clear into legally. Where was that in Cuba
1: then? Varadero. Varadero is a okay. major tourism region. It's it's where there's uh, beaches with ten miles of hotels, and they have a little. There's a little opening there, so there's a natural harbor, and a small marina inside. There was maybe. 10 or 15 um, boats there, mostly Canadian, as I recall, and that was just our first spot there in Cuba where we hung our hats for a week or so, and then another and another. Uh, Havana, there's the big marina there, just on the west side of the city called Ernest Hemingway Marina, and um, then continuing westward until we made our leap across the Yucatan passage.
0: How was that passage? That was a pretty difficult passage from from Cuba to to Mexico then. Or would... Well, it's
1: similar to the Florida Straits in that it's, you know, it's the same current. It's the Gulf it's the Gulf Stream and it's flowing at about 3 knots and <clears throat> we we didn't dial it in quite right when we left Florida. We we fought the current too much, um, kind of angled into it, and um, so for the purpose of the Yucatan passage, we, in retrospect, we we leaned over backwards and we uh, we uh, compensated a little more than we had to. But the what we did there was we we went we didn't want to get swept northwards into the Gulf of Mexico. So before entering the the current, we went, um, I guess that'd be south or southwest, like an extra 100 miles or 150 miles, so that when we did get into the current, it would be entirely in our favor. And so we... um, So from the tip of Cuba, you
0: headed headed basically south, making sure you were out of the current, and then took a a right-hand turn to get over then. Right,
1: said. so when we dig into the current we was it was taking us it was taking us in a in a, in a direction we could accept oh, okay and and the 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 wind directions were all, were entirely in our favor, so that was fine, but it still was a thirty six hour crossing and uh very tiring
0: yeah, what are the talk to us about the sleeping conditions on your boat would and, and what you would do when you would do an overnight cruise would one person Uh, row or be on board and watch or could you would your boat sail itself could you set up a rig okay no there's no there's
1: no self-sailing there's no um pilot um uh just not think of the right word but uh there's no um Mm self-steering there is a, a tiller tamer you can you can set the tiller but of course that doesn't hold you on course for very long so and nor nor is it possible to go below going below it, there's just a little space in there anyway and it's not it's just not p- proper practice because boats like this they're unballasted, they can always capsize quite easily and w- if the if the hatches are all shut and they are shut that's the number one thing to understand on dealing with boats like this is that all this is possible only if you have hatch discipline at all times and um, so if you do capsize you 'll be able to get that boat right side up again if all the hatches are shut, but it, it not immediately you you may be you know mass horizontally in the water for a while until you can um, get the right leverage and you're doing it with your body strength you know it's not self-riding but allows crew right and this is the same for both of these boats the 12-foot boat and the 21-foot boat they it's not hard to write it maybe it would be hard in a big storm you know with yeah. huge crashing waves or something but um you'll get yourself uh standing in the right way holding on to a rope like your sheet or something or maybe standing on a lee board when it's pivoted in the downward direction, and then you can make that boat come up again. But you don't want to be the person inside the cabin while all this happened. Plus, you you wouldn't have any ventilation for that person in there. So um, you just neither of you go go below, and it's not really possible to sleep just sitting, um, you know, just kind of scrunched up on the deck or something. So there might be a little bit of a catnap if you're if you're able to. Um, sleep in such a condition, uh, or you just stay awake until you get there.
0: Okay, so you have a wife that's a rarity for doing for doing this sort of thing. That's pretty uncomfortable conditions for her to put up with and that's a that's a rare woman I think.
1: Yeah it's a really interesting case with her because she, I wouldn't say she is a boater, she didn't particularly love sailing, she's just an adventurous person, she's very small, She's, she was not a big, strong rower. She's not big enough or strong enough for that. But she, um, what she had in spades was just moxie, just courage. And she never failed there. So she was able to go through the scariest, most trying situations without you know quailing, without whining, without ever being the one to say, I give up or anything like that.
0: All right. So you head over, and where do you make your landfall on the Yucatan Peninsula then? Right there in Cancun. Oh, okay.
1: A Come big right tourist the spot then, huh? Yeah. Um, we came there and then went over to Isla Mujeres and spent probably three weeks there. All
0: right. And then you work your way down to Belize. Was the crossing, was a was bureaucracy from Mexico to Belize... Fairly straightforward, then.
1: That one's no no particular problem at all.
0: Okay, and uh, you worked your way down through Belize, and I think I've actually visited the island that you uh, you stayed at. There's a I went out. I visited Belize quite a while ago, and uh, I was looking at Google Google Maps while I was doing this. Google Earth is better, but on my iPad I have Google Maps, and uh, and you got married in Belize. Is that correct? Yeah, and
1: the island you're thinking of is Key Cocker. Yeah. At least yeah. that's where we got married. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty popular place, so you may have been there.
0: Yeah, it was just a ferry ride out from uh from Belize City. So mm-hmm. Okay. And you worked your way down, did you do any scuba diving? You just did a lot of snorkeling in Belize?
1: A lot of snorkeling. That was really the initial purpose was to do a lot of snorkeling and that's where we' It was sort of a mission creep. We did that. We we went out to those atolls that are off the shore of... There's one off the shore of Mexico. It's called um, Banco Chinchorro. And then there's two or three off the shore of Belize. Lighthouse Reef, Glover Reef, and Turneff Reef. And they're all really... They're atolls like what you find in the Pacific.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they, they That is, they have a little lagoon in the middle, but they drop off steeply on all sides and so yeah, we went and did a lot of snorkeling in those places, it was great absolutely clear water
0: yeah, very pretty water, nice warm water, did you see a lot of uh, cruising sailors along the way? I'm sure you did
1: we saw them, you know, only in, in, in patches and spots of course, Isla Mujeres and Rio Dulce and such you know, well known spots. In between, not so much. We we tended to we tended to follow right right close to the coast, you know, and most you know, a blue water boat doesn't want to do that. When these little boats like what I sail, um, most of the time you're not doing those passages. You're you're following along a coastline. Believe it or not, the, the psychology is, is often that if something goes wrong you want to be able to swim ashore. <laughs> You know a blue so- mm-hmm. blue a blue water sailor doesn't think that way, but these little boats you kind of think that way you know it's it's more interesting to be close to shore there's more stuff to see i mean you're just you might as well look at the trees and so forth and maybe even see the bottom you know, so you tend to be close to shore
0: okay and is it easy along the coast of Belize was it easy to find spots to tie up for the night?
1: well, Belize has all the little mangrove islands some of them are just mangrove some of them are a patch of sand and then if you get further enough south there's actually some trees and some some upland but um there's plenty of there's plenty of lees you know if you have a if you have a shallow draft boat plenty of places where you can um stop uh anchor or Don 't even need to anchor necessarily you can tie to something like mangrove, but the problem in Belize, and we were there in the summertime is that it 's so hot and there 's so many bugs, and the uh, the weather is so stormy it 's just so hot that there 's lightning storms every night, and then these winds spring up that uh, it is it is difficult uh, because you're you're not able to find a way in which to be in calm water and at the same time far enough away from the bugs. So that was difficult, actually.
0: Okay. So you were there during the hurricane season then?
1: Yeah, we were. And that's just something where if you have um, a boat that's light enough to go where we... I, mean, I don't know how... I, I can't say it's entirely safe, but you... If a hurricane came up, you'd have some notice, I guess, mm-hmm. and you'd be able to pull it into the mangrove or with 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 only two people besides ourselves. We could pull it up you know anywhere on a up a beach, for example, so that's the idea uh as to why one proceeds even in the hurricane season, as we did
0: yeah. You went up Rio Dolce, uh, when you when you went through Belize, you left and went into uh, I guess it was is it Nicaragua is the next country down then? It's Belize, Guatemala, Honduras. Oh, okay. So Guatemala then. Guatemala mm-hmm. and then uh yeah, Nicaragua Hondor, Nicaragua Nicaragua's south of Honduras. Okay, I'm just zooming out so I can actually see the names. But Rio Dolce is well known as a hurricane hole for sailors. So when you were there I zoomed in in particular to look at where you were, uh, where you pulled your boat out of the water, and that was a fairly, is it that? City? No, it was the next one over that you did, but you didn't pull your boat out of the water in Rio Dolce. It was the next uh, next place down, the next country down in, uh, in Honduras, Honduras, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: La Ceiba.
0: La Ceiba, yeah. And I zoomed in on that marina, and it's got a long, a large uh, standing, hard standing area as well. Which uh, is what I'm always looking for for my boat when I leave my boat.
1: Yeah, that's a good marina. It's ran by, at least it was at that time, uh, some Cuban fellows, and they they accommodate a good a good mix of commercial fishing boats and yachts.
0: Yeah, and actually uh, a couple days ago, I I filled out their online form and asked for a bid on on wintering the boat, and they got it back to me the next day. So they're very responsive. Which yeah, was yeah. Uh, which was good to find out, because there's basically only a couple places to haul your boat out of the water in that part of the Caribbean, and and uh, I know there's a, I guess a few other places to haul out near Aruba or Curico. Uh but uh, that that seems to be a fairly popular summering spot. I should say wintering. I say wintering because I'm so used to wintering in the Mediterranean. But for for the hurricane season, you're summering your boat, pulling the boat out of the water during the summer. Mm-hmm. So, so continue mm-hmm. on. Uh, you had to do some repairs on your boat. Let's talk about that. Well, our boat,
1: that that boat, that twenty one footer, we had to do a lot of modifications to it. There was a there was a year full time construction to build the storage systems and the tankage systems and the. Uh, uh, the ca- the cabin top because it's comes as an open boat and we had to make it an enclosed boat and to build the uh, the fittings for the rowing station and then once you're underway you've got just a lot of fine tuning and debugging but then you've got maintenance that comes in and so we just had a little bit of everything there in La Seba. We had a long to-do list of things to do. By that time, we had experienced gel coat blisters, you know, amongst everything else that was going on. And we, for example, we did some painting. Um, at first, we thought that this new cabin top that we built, we could leave it clear wood. It was made out of um, cedar, and then we realized that in the tropics that is too dark of a color, so we painted it white. And uh, just various things, very miscellaneous, but we did did have to stop in a lot of places and and spend a lot of time working on the boat at first, and then uh, less and less as time went on, and we kind of got that under our belts and had that pretty well figured out.
0: Okay, okay, and so that was where you i'm actually zoomed in on the la Seba shipyard right now, and that's where you had your boat out as I recall, and they've got on a,
1: land yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we 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 had a we we went underneath a tri, a a catamaran there was a catamaran so large that our whole boat and our whole camp fit underneath the the catamaran, so we got out of the rain we're there in the rainy season, so that was useful to us to have this Structure of a different boat over our heads.
0: Well, I'm looking at the Google Earth image, and there's still a couple catamarans, so maybe it never left. It's <laughs> t- <laughs> yeah, it
1: wasn't in very good shape then.
0: Okay, so so that's where you did a lot of work. Was it how difficult was it to get parts for doing your work there?
1: Well, they did have a little shop there that was surprisingly good. Like, as I recall, they had the necessary um west system epoxy products and i think we had to find we had to find the uh, the proper fillers you know when you mix a filler in with the resin to thicken it up we were able to find colloidal silica and uh you're able to find fiberglass of the right types there so it's a pretty good place, but it's not necessarily going to have uh, parts for engines or electronics. I'm not sure how good they are there.
0: Okay, okay. And at this point in time, you didn't have a motor. You were still doing everything right. by rowing or sailing. Then. Right.
1: And the most difficult part of that by far was that from the Rio Dulce, we continued east, and now we're, like we're talking in La Ceiba, we had a lot further to go in an easterly direction go along the shore of Honduras because that's directly into the trade winds and the the shore of Honduras is a regular coastline fairly straight with few harbors and so we can't go very far in a day and because it's into the wind and against the current and we don't have enough harbors to, to stop at so we're having to do other things, uh, go overnight or start really early like start when it's 3 a.m. and hope to get where we want to go before the sun goes down and um, we made it to and around this next big Cape Cabo Gracias Dios and um, there we had some interesting experiences. The There's a lot of drug trafficking there and it was strongly encouraged that we not follow the coastline so we went out to these very small islands that are scattered about that are typically about 40 miles offshore and so we went from one to another of those they were pretty far apart too but then we completed that circuit and and came into nicaragua proper and began following the shoreline there again
0: okay yeah i'm looking at a couple of little islands offshore here and uh, yeah, so you've got to go out because you couldn't really couldn't really just follow the coastline. it doesn't look like, so yeah, there's a little island called Utila. Is that the one, one of them you went to Utila
1: Utila is one of the bay islands, so that okay. is that's you're still you're still, still in the central part of of Honduras. If you look further to the east as the coastline is starting to round. Into downward mm-hmm. um, they're they're smaller you'd have to zoom in to see them it's called um, Vivo Rio and um, Isla. I think there's an Isla Mosquito and they're very small in fact some of those islands don't even exist they, it says there's an Edinburgh island and it says there's a Cayo Muerto and that's a funny one because it says it's Cayo Muerto which means dead island well it really is a dead island it no longer exists and that's because it was never big to start with and then some hurricane 50 or 100 years ago washed it totally away but you can see where it is because mm-hmm. there's there's a shallow there you can you can wade there okay so it actually serves serves us just fine it's a lee and we can anchor there and we can get out of the out of the out of the waves you know but it's not an island
0: okay so that was probably one of your more difficult blue water passages to get around Honduras then.
1: Yes. Yes. And then coming into the um, that town there is Puerto Cabey, Puerto Cabellos. Puerto Cabello, I believe it is. No. Puerto Cabezas. Um we that's that's in the that whole experience was in the wintertime and so there was um, northers, nortenos. The the storms are winds coming from the north, and we we experienced two of those storms, and and they were not pleasant.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. I can't imagine how tough it must be in a small boat like that, and uh, it, it it you've got a serious sense of adventure to do that. Then
1: very unpleasant. Yeah. To to spend the night unable to sleep and um. It's just um in the darkness and the breaking waves,
0: yeah, yeah, now was it in uh, Honduras or Nicaragua where where you were attacked that was oh in no, actually, Costa Rica. I take it back, it was in Costa Rica, yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so, so did you have any real problems in Nicaragua other than bureaucracy
1: no, not really we We followed the coastline, which cruisers don't generally do it's got a bad enough reputation that that were there were no other yachts visible in Nicaragua none of them there was the city of the por- harbor city of Bluefields that's of some size but nobody comes into there and um but it was beautiful we had uh, no further problems other than uh, some some um bureaucracy problems basically a, a bribe extracted from us in that first place we came in. And um, then the next country is, is Costa Rica.
0: And Costa Rica's and Co- got a reputation as a, as a place you want to go visit, but it didn't turn out to be that way so much for you, did it?
1: No, I think that um, Americans think of, coast, when they think of Costa Rica, they think of those parts of Costa Rica that Americans go to, which tend to be the highlands. Mm-hmm. And um, we were right in, Puerto Limon, right on the Caribbean coast, and um that's not a very um, savory area. There's really poor slums and there's there's extremes there's extremes of poverty there. People like we we stayed in a, basically it was an estuary, we needed to find um Uh, refuge to sleep in and so we slept we went into an estuary there that is um, a slum of Puerto Limón and um, it was not a nice place and that's the area where we got um, mugged. We had it was we were going for a walk there in the vicinity of Puerto Limón and uh, we were mugged by teenagers, teenage boys that snuck up behind us with knives and rocks and I, I was quickly overpowered, but my wife, I guess they figured my, my wife would be easy, easier to attack, so there was only one person on her, where there, whereas there were two people on me. But she actually fought harder and longer, and it took them longer to subdue her, uh, but eventually, well, it did not take long before they, they, they took what we had.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at uh, Porto Limón, and it looks like that estuary you're talking about is uh, the approach from the east into a, basically an estuary. But it's it's surrounded by by slums, by houses on both sides. So it's not like a, a, a swamp with no people. It's got people everywhere, it looks like.
1: Right. It's, it's a <laughs> heavily populated swamp is what it is.
0: Yeah, okay. And it looks like it dead ends right at the very end, so you couldn't go any farther to... Uh, to find any sanctuary, it doesn't look like. Yeah. yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, the people there. Just as an aside, the the poor people tend to be Nicaraguans. When when the war was occurring, it was sorry, kind of a civil war in in Nicaragua. They they the refugees went to Costa Rica, and so it's almost like a refugee camp for Nicaraguans there.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So. Did you need to stay in there for any particular length of time? Were you in Limon to do repairs? Were you there just to do bureaucracy? How long did you need to stay there?
1: We found a place to leave the boat safely that was a like a little secure compound. And we left it for a week really to take a vacation from our trip. We went to the capital city, which is, I can never remember if that's San Juan or San Jose. I think it's San Jose is the capital of the Costa Rica. We just took a bus there, got a hotel room there. San Jose, I I
0: had to zoom out far enough to see it. So San Jose, right, okay.
1: We went to San Jose just to experience an upland, you know, a city Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in, you know, situation where the the climate's not as hot and um, just sort of relax
0: a little bit there. Okay, so that was a vacation for you then? That was a vacation, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then you had to get back on the grind and continue to, you'd continue your adventure as opposed to vacation. Yeah. Then. So.
1: Yeah. And this and then um, we had the very nest experience was one of the most interesting ones. Which you, it's to my advantage you've read the book, so you know know about it. It's the Rio San Juan, and um, that was an interesting experience. We we oft we want to f- find a refuge refuge, and there aren't enough, so. We, we go to where they th- we think there is one, but then the the swells are too big. When the swells are big, that means that, you know, this is a lee shore. The, the trade winds are blowing directly onto land, and those swells, if big, like eight feet tall, is plenty big enough to make a huge surf, and you want to go up that river mouth. Well, sorry, you know, that river mouth is blocked by surf. And uh, we found a way in there um, and had an interesting experience there at the mouth of the Rio San Juan. Um, but it involved getting assistance where, we, where somebody came out and took us under tow uh, in order to find that sort of secret, mysterious passageway where it is possible, if you know what you're doing, to get through the surf and into the river. And then we stayed a few days, and then the same thing coming back out. Somebody had to tow us out. We couldn't have done it by ourselves. It was just they were towing us out through breaking waves, you know, straight into the waves. So yeah. let's and, um, describe
0: this. So you're, you're out there, and you're getting bashed by these breaking waves. You're on a lee shore. You throw out your anchor, and before the anchor can bite, you're really right in the... Uh, Right in almost where it's breaking all the time. And you jump overboard and swim to shore, leaving your wife on board, and run up to a bunch of fishermen and say, I'll give you $15 to come out and tow me in. Right? Is that my Am I oh, correct? That's,
1: that's correct, but uh, you're in the wrong location.
0: Oh, right. I'm in the wrong one. That okay. That yes, but not, <laughs> not, not yet.
1: <laughs> that's in Columbia.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So that was the story I remembered. but uh, Well, we
1: could go straight to that. That's a good story. Um, exactly as you say, I I want to go into that little river mouth. Very small, but it's a time of not storm, particularly just kind of standard stiff um, trade winds, and that's enough of a swell to make it impossible to enter that little river mouth. And I was uh, under power with my two horse. Honda because by this point in time we had bought that little two horse outboard.
0: Now that was and bought I, in Panama wasn't it?
1: Panama. Right. In Panama City. Okay. And because from there you have to go straight east. East in Panamanian waters and then Colombian waters and Venezuelan waters and uh, so where you, where you the case you brought up there was an example of uh, we need to get We've been motoring all day into the headwinds, and I'm going back and forth across where I think there's a river mouth, looking for, you know, I've got my hand over my eyes, looking, uh, can I get in there, can I get in there? And you're looking at, um, you're looking at the breakers, but you're looking at the back sides of the breakers. You're, you're at sea looking at the breakers, which is not a good view. If you were on the beach, you'd see the white of the breaking water. But if, if you're on the seaward side, you see the green or blue water, you can't see the breaking so well. And so, um, and then a, a bigger, all it takes is for a bigger wave or set of waves than usual to come. That means they're gonna break further out. And that's what happened. I was, as I was just kind of staying as close as I could, could to see where, where and if I could get in, then a bigger wave came, which broke, and breaking over the boat not enough to capsize this but enough to to extinguish the motor you know got the got the spark plug wet probably got some water into the into the carburetor motor doesn't start well there's a 20 knot wind blowing you into where the breakers are even worse so it's immediately throw out the anchor grab and then even though you've done it ex- really quickly you're now further into the breaking waves and um, yeah that's where I just swam ashore got somebody uh, fortunately there was a that that river mouth was there and I was able to just swim there and there was a fisherman there that I paid $15 to 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 go back out a, a boat that is a fishing boat with a outboard motor you know a substantially heavier boat he can go through that surf and he went out we took my boat and got my boat and brought it back in.
0: Yeah, quite an adventure. Now, we've been talking about an hour now, and that's as long as I want to go, but I think we've whetted the appetite of my listeners to buy your book. Tell them where they can find your book.
1: It's available at Amazon and any other bookstore.
0: Okay, okay. And it's called The Five-Year Voyage, Exploring Latin American Coasts and Rivers by Stephen Ladd. Steve, we're going to cut it off here, and I'm going to try to get you back on another episode to continue the uh the story if you're open to that.
1: It's been really fun. So I I would be open to that.
0: Okay, great. But for today I've got somebody coming into my office and I've got to run. So thanks Steve. We'll talk yeah, we'll, we'll arrange another time to get together uh by email, okay? Sounds great. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye okay, bye. The website for sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com again medsailor.com life is short in the end all that really matters is the memories you make so make a few go sailing
1: Joel, you want to know something?
0: What? Every now and then, say what the... F- what the f- gives
1: you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.